You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. I think everybody in this room can probably remember your favorite car. Can you picture it? What color was it? Mine was blue, but not just blue, like Jolly Rancher blue. Right? It was a 1997 Chevy S10 that I paid $850 for. When the previous owner met me in the restaurant parking lot, he explained that he had used it for hauling appliances out of foreclosed homes. In his haste to load up old refrigerators, stoves, and deep freezes, he left his mark in dings, dents, and a slightly detached bumper. Didn't matter though, this was my truck. No AC, no power windows, an ABS brake light permanently set on, didn't matter, it was my truck. Five minutes later, I'm flying down the road at 70 miles an hour. I got the windows down. I got the radio cranked. I am singing Don't Stop Believing" by Journey at the top of my lungs, and I feel amazing until I noticed that my little blue truck pulled a little hard to the right. So far, in fact, that I had to have my arm at a permanent 45-degree angle with the wheel turned like that just to stay on the road. Correcting, overcorrecting, holding my breath the entire hour ride home. Thankfully, I made it home safe. The joy of my idealism tempered slightly by the looming reality of repair work. Alignment, it would seem, is actually pretty important. Hold on to that idea for just a second. Here's something that I've noticed in my life, and I'm willing to bet that you may have noticed it too. I don't think getting excited about Jesus is our issue. I think aligning our lives with Jesus is the issue. And like my little blue truck, we can get by for a little while, but when we get out on the road and things get tough, excitement about Jesus cannot sustain us. We need to ask, where do my passions, my motivations, and my burdens line up? Alignment, it would seem is actually pretty important. So this week begins our four-week series on Nehemiah, and you may be asking, okay, why are we here? Why start in Nehemiah? Here is the why. Um, Our first series this year about resolutions, we tried to give you some really applicable teaching with some really accessible tools like cookies on the bottom shelf, here you go, but now we need to take those tools and get out on the road. And so maybe you've been with us the last few weeks and you say, okay, I'm all in. Like my time, talents, my treasures, I'm ready to go. What does this look like? Show me. Enter Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the story of a man who discovers his burden. Nehemiah's story is a story worth telling because his burden is a worthy burden. So quick heads up, this series is actually going to mess with you a little bit. It's not going to provide a whole lot of answers. It's actually going to raise a lot more questions. The risk of handling a book like this or a series like this is that we fly too high to be helpful. 
but I'm going to trust you guys to do the hard work of asking the questions on your own and leaning in. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the first part of Nehemiah's story, A Common Burden. And we're going to look at it through three acts. And each one of these acts teach us that God's power shows up when our burdens line up. God's power shows up when our burdens line up. And that brings us to what we'll call Act 1, a sober report. Act 1, a sober report. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 1 of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I'm willing to bet that none of you have an ancient Jewish calendar app on your phone. I'm willing to bet that none of you recognize those names. And if you know where Susa is, you are way smarter than I am. I had to look it up. So let's back up and get a handle on what's going on. First, when is all this happening? Nehemiah was written in about 430 B.C., so about 400 years before Jesus. Here's a quick overview just to get us in the ballpark. About a thousand years earlier, God had made his promise or promised his people a land. And then they lived in that land for about 500 years. But because they loved other gods more than the God of creation, other kings came in and wiped out the land. All you need to know is that God's people for about the last 150 years, Nehemiah included, have been living in exile away from their promised land. So who were these kings? In the ancient Near East, uh, it was kind of like a political pot of boiling water, like a revolving door of kingdoms, rising and falling, expansion and conquering and growing. At Nehemiah's point in history, the big dog on the porch is Persia. Persian kingdom is reigning over the ancient world, and a king named Artaxerxes is on the throne. I tried to tell Dave and Kara that that made a great baby name, Artaxerxes, but they didn't quite buy it, so, you know. Another detail that we need to clear up. Nehemiah, outside of being the son of Hakaliah, which means nothing to most of us, who is this guy? So we know from Nehemiah's story that he was Artaxerxes' cupbearer. It's a very interesting position. This wasn't like a sommelier, like someone who was paid to taste wine. It was more like a security guard who had a deep loyalty to his king. Here's how this would work. The cupbearer would fill the glass in the king's presence. He would take a sip. They would lock eyes for a few minutes, and then when it was safe, he would hand the glass to the king. His whole job was to make sure the king wasn't poisoned. Paranoid much? But here's why this is important. Artaxerxes' dad was killed in his own bedroom by a member of his own court. Another king in the ancient world was poisoned because an assassin spiked his wine. And so when Artaxerxes becomes king, he finds this man of integrity, this trustworthy man called Nehemiah, and he puts him in this very trustworthy position. Nehemiah would have had a confidential relationship with the king and knew things about him that no one else in the kingdom knew. But when our text takes over today, and when we drop into this story, 
we find Nehemiah on the receiving end of a very troubling conversation. One of his countrymen, a man named Hanani, it could be his biological brother, we don't really know, had come back from Jerusalem, the promised land, and he brings very troubling news. Did you see it in verse 3? He says this, he says, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now here's something you got to know. Remember the king, Artaxerxes? He's the reason why. God's people have tried to rebuild the walls a lot over the years, and every time Artaxerxes says no because of this paranoid foreign policy, mm -mm, not going to happen, he halted progress. Nehemiah has a life of limited but heavy responsibility. He lived his whole life in the Persian court. His burden up until now has been as faint as a whisper because he's kind of got it cushy. But God is about to do something in his life that will change him forever. Act two, a desperate prayer. Act two, a desperate prayer. Let's pick up the text in verse four. Here's what he says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I'm going to stop for a second. We're going to get to Nehemiah's prayer in just a little bit. But I want you to see his response. Five things he did. He sat down, he wept, he mourned, he fasted and prayed. Now, what's with the extreme response? I mean, like if you, you know, turned on WHBC and you found out that like the portage ramp to I-77 was destroyed or like the Hall of Fame bridge was imploded, you probably wouldn't act this way. <laughs> So what's with his like whole, oh my gosh, there's walls that are broken down. What's going on here? This is difficult for us to get our minds around. But God's city, Jerusalem, was and is for God's people a tangible reminder of God's favor and blessing on them, a reminder of his goodness. And so Nehemiah is not just grieving the loss of a wall, or the loss of farming terraces. He's grieving the loss of God's dream for his people. And so when he hears Hanani's report, his thoughts are catapulted from this Persian throne room to a pile of rubble 900 miles east. But deeper than tears, this is the birth of Nehemiah's burden. You can almost hear him say, he's like, I see something in my mind. I hear something, and this is not right. I can't look the other way, which is a great start for a burden, by the way. So in desperation, he hits his knees, and he prays. Isn't it interesting, though, for us, how often we view prayer as like the last defense? <laughs> we kind of casually say things like, well, I don't know. I guess we can just pray. I don't know what to do. We should just pray. Kind of like, well, we've done everything we can do. Now let's turn things back over to God and see what he can figure out, right? Well, we're busy realizing, like trying to figure out the right thing to do. What we fail to understand is prayer is the thing to do. That is the hard work. So what does Nehemiah's prayer look like? Let's dissect this thing. They all, there's three parts, and they all start with the letter R. So for those of you note takers who love alliteration, this is my gift to you. Here you go. The first part of Nehemiah's prayer, recognition. Recognition. He recognizes who God is. Take a look in verse 5. Here's what he says. 
And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's how he addresses God. He says a couple of things. He says, God, you're in heaven. You're higher than I am. God, you're great and you're awesome. You're more powerful than I am. You keep your steadfast love. You're more loving than I am. And you keep your covenants. You're more faithful than I am. You want to know where revival starts? Worship. Revival starts when God's people just worship him and recognize him for who he is. That's the first part of his prayer. Second part of his prayer is repentance. Repentance. This starts in verse 6. Here's what he says. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What's striking to me about this, by the way, is that Nehemiah does not point the finger. It's interesting, isn't it? He could have said, it's the king's fault, God. He's the one who halted the walls. It's his fault. He could have said, God, it's the priest's fault. They should have known. They should have given a priority. Or he could have gone straight to the top and said, God, it's your fault. You're the, one we're in, you're the reason we're in exile. This is all you but he doesn't do any of that. He blows right past it and he says, me, us, we're the problem. I'm the problem. Repentance goes way beyond regretting what I did and begs God to restore who I'm supposed to be. Getting personal, I'm absolutely convinced Revival is only possible when we work harder to repent of our sin than to obscure our sin. And we work really hard to obscure our sin, don't we? We don't want anybody finding out about that stuff. Put another way, if all you want is to be seen as right, you will never see revival. Which is why Nehemiah spends half of his prayer repenting. So, Recognition, repentance. The third piece to Nehemiah's prayer is remembrance. Take a look in verse eight. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what's happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen and make them to dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We'll get to that last little bit in just a second. He begs God to remember his promises. (laughs) Remember what you've done. And I love this part, right? Because it's not like God forgot. It's not like when we're in prayer and we remember back to God what he promised to us. He's up there going, well, thank you, Brandon. I remember. That's, that's, I'd forgotten. You're so thoughtful, Brandon, to remind me of those things. That's not what God does, and that's not what Nehemiah is doing here. Why is he going through all this? 
Because in remembering back to God everything that he has done, he's actually talking about God's character because God's actions are connected to God's heart. God acts faithfully because God is faithful. God acts mercifully because he is merciful. God acts on behalf of his people because he is loving. So why does God, or why does Nehemiah bring all that up? Because revival does not rest in who we are, but in who God is. So, recognition, repentance, remembrance. Not a bad formula for prayer. And we're going to move on to Act 3 in just a second. But before we leave Nehemiah on his knees, let's not miss that little verse at the end of verse 11. What's with that little tack on the end? Do you see it? Where he just says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah wants to make one thing clear. He wants us to know that what is about to happen isn't because of his position, but in spite of his position. So let's park here for just a second. Do you ever feel like you're just a cupbearer? You ever thought that the reality of your position limits your ability to live out your burden? Nehemiah's just a cupbearer. But because he's put everything he has, his time, his talents, and his treasures in front of the Almighty God and says, here, God, you figure this out. You tell me what to do. I am yours. You make sense of this. Because he does that, he's about to see something amazing. And so that little bit at the end of verse 11 clues us in that what happens next isn't because Nehemiah is anything great, but because he serves a great God. So hear me. Your limitations, your family backstory, your history, your mistakes, right? The credentials you don't have, the connections you don't have, the degrees that you don't have, those limitations are like tissue paper in the hand of an almighty God who's writing his story. Just a cupbearer. So, five months go by. Nehemiah has heard and been broken by Hanani's report. He is faithfully serving his king in public while collecting this prayer visual in, in private. And now all of the prayer, all of the waiting, and all of the heartache is about to pay off. God's power is about to show up because Nehemiah's burdens are about to line up. So act three, a bold request. Look with me in chapter two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So it's five months later and it's festival time. The king is hosting a huge party for everybody in the kingdom. It's this opulent display of wealth and power for the people. But in the middle of all the fun is Debbie Downer Nehemiah. And something is not right. The scene starts with a question. Why is your face sad? 
The king asks asks Nehemiah because he can't hide it anymore. He's been fasting for five months, and that kind of does something to your body. But then also he's fearful because he knows, remember, the reason for this burden is the king himself. He knows he's got to tell the truth to the king about what his actions have done to his people and his God. The king, his best friend, has broken his heart. And so for five months, Nehemiah has lived with this tension echoing around his head. And so here's Nehemiah with this seasick heart, this writhing, tempestuous, churning restlessness deep inside. He's holding a bottle, or this glass of wine in front of the king, this symbol of like peace and prosperity and all that's good in life. And there's music and there's celebration, which stands in such contrast to Nehemiah's inner crushing burden and this complete poverty of spirit. It's easy to imagine his hands are shaking His eyes can't lift as high as they normally do. His head is bowed as if by some unseen weight. It's easy to imagine the wine making these trembling ripples in the glass as he holds it before the king. He's not well, and he can't hide it anymore. Nehemiah hears the king's words, Why is your face sad? And so with dimming eyes and a shaking soul, what Nehemiah Nehemiah wants to say but can't is, King, you're the reason I'm devastated. You stopped the walls. You wounded my people. But here's what he says instead. Take a look in verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And as courageous as that answer is, the subtext is dangerously obvious. King, my king, you know I'm loyal to you, but there is a deeper loyalty. A loyalty that spans generations, that runs deeper than a wine glass. A loyalty that spills the banks of national boundaries and earthly kingdoms. It's my God. My heart is connected to my God, and my heart is broken. And you have to know that in that moment, all the music, all the celebration, all the wine fades into the background, and the focus narrows to a king and his servant, the most powerful man in the world and the most vulnerable. A snap of his finger, and Nehemiah is gone. I don't know how many seconds or minutes passed after verse three, but it had to feel like an eternity for this young cupbearer. But it's what happens next that changes the course of the narrative, changes Nehemiah's life, and I'd argue changes the course of history for God's people. The king speaks. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Guys, it seems like this that spark revival. From the mouth of a pagan king with absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose, with world-changing implications hanging in the air, Nehemiah understands the opportunity for what it is, and in characteristic fashion, what's he do? He prays again. But the dialogue continues. Now here's where it gets crazy. Verse five, or, yeah, verse five. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. 
And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that, I may, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I will occupy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think we can miss how significant of a dialogue this is. But again, there's this really powerful subtext pulling this thing along like an undercurrent of a river. Here's what's going on. Nehemiah says, okay, here we go. I'm stepping out. Here's what I want to do. The city that your fathers destroyed, I want to rebuild. The walls that you considered a waste, I want to restore. And where your fathers saw destruction, I want revival. He just, here you go. The king's question in verse 6, how long will this take? That's not a project management question, Okay. He's not asking about a timeline. He's asking, what do I have to give up? What is this going to cost me? It's already going to cost you because you're going. What else is this going to cost me? Nehemiah answers him in the most dangerous way possible. He says, king, it's going to cost your pride. In effect, Nehemiah says, I don't just want your blessing. I want your influence. Those letters that he's asking for, for the governors, these are Artaxerxes saying, I was wrong to stop the work in Jerusalem. I made a mistake. This is a total reversal of foreign policy. When have you ever seen a world leader say, I messed up, I was wrong? Never. Why? Because ego. Persian kings don't say, I'm sorry. They just don't do that kind of stuff. So what does the king do? Back to the end of verse 8. Check this out. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me no way don't miss the reason why Nehemiah says it right in there why did all this happen for the good hand of my God was upon me God's power shows up when our burdens line up and I love that image, because that's what we all want, right? To know that the things that break my heart are also on the heart of God. And that I can feel the good hand of God on my life. Isn't that what you want? Nehemiah is careful to give God all the credit, even though he's just a broken-hearted cupbearer. God's power shows up when our burdens line up. Fun little fact before we move on. Chapter 2 happens in the month of Nisan, Guess what other festival happened in the month of Nisan? Passover. When God liberated his people out of Egypt. Interesting. So that's Act 3. Where do we go from here? I'm going to put some questions on the table that only you can answer. I told you I would, so here you go. There are three questions I want to ask you this morning, and I'm going to trust you to lean in on your own. First question, what is your burden? What is your burden? Nehemiah's story is a story about opportunity. It's a man who was burdened by something to the point where he had to act on it. 
I think that one of the greatest misconceptions about Christianity that we need to correct is this terrible, subtle idea that following Jesus means my life is going to get easy. Is not. When God talks about how he changes his people, here's what he actually says. He says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. What does that even mean? It means you're going to feel things that you've never felt before. You're going to care about things that you never cared about before. He's going to replace your apathy with empathy and your selfishness with selflessness. It means things are going to bother you because a heart of stone doesn't feel a thing. But a heart of flesh can break. Here's my point. We should not be concerned when we are burdened by something. We should be concerned when we're not. Our world is a dark place, and the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the gospel-centered Christian leans in and has the audacity to say, this is not okay with me. And we may come with shaking hands and knocking knees, but we lean in anyway. Be suspicious of any version of Christianity that makes you less human, less aware of the brokenness around you, less connected to the darkness of this world. Hear me, when you live as a follower of Jesus, you have released your right to a burdenless existence. You don't have that option anymore. But what we do get is infinitely more satisfying. So don't be afraid of living a burdened life. Be afraid of a life with no burdens at all. So that's the first question. What is your burden? Second question. Is your burden worthy? Is your burden worthy? Here's why that's an important question to ask. I believe that one of the biggest hindrances to gospel movement today isn't Christians without burdens, but Christians with unworthy burdens. It's not that we're lacking passion, but it's that our passion is so often misspent. We're rallying around short-sighted causes. We're caring deeply about things that God does not care about. And I think some of us need to repent of those short-sighted burdens because they're an indictment of where our hope is really fixed. And so we've got to have the courageous humility to look in the mirror and go, God, is what I care about worth caring about? In a minute, we're going to sing a song with a line in it, and it goes like this. It says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Guys, that is one of the most dangerous prayers you could ever pray. Because here's the thing. I don't even think many of us want to see the things that break God's heart, much less be broken ourselves. Because the things that break God's heart are dirty and dark and sinister, and heavy, and they cost us. And so we'll send money to the things that break God's heart. We'll grieve over the things that break God's heart from a distance. We'll pray over the things that break God's heart, and we should do that, but so many of us are content to live there, and so few of us want to actually be broken ourselves, and so few of us enter in, and so few of us actually see the joy of revival. Many Christians want to be close enough to those things that we can pray thoughtfully, give mindfully, and discuss intelligently, but we also want to be far enough away where we don't get dirty. And it doesn't work that way. So how do you, how do you know if you have a worthy, bur- worthy burden? Good question. Read the Gospels. Watch Jesus. When you see yourself caring about the things that Jesus cares about, he's God incarnate. Watch him, follow him, study him. 
And you want to know what you're going to find? A little spoiler alert when you do that. You are going to be shocked at the things that he doesn't do that many Christians obsess over, and you're going to be shocked at the things that he does that many Christians never would. So let's dig in and give up unworthy burdens. That's the second question. Is your burden worthy? Third question, and then we're going to wrap up. What will you give up for your burden? Do you have a burden? Is it a worthy burden? What will you give up for your burden? Nehemiah gave up his position. He was the most trusted man in the kingdom. He had job security. He had comfort. He had upward mobility. And eventually he came out and he goes, okay, God, it's all yours. That's stewardship. Time, talents, treasures. Here you go, God. Everything I am. But in addition to his position, he also gave up peace. And I think we need to acknowledge that. It strikes me that Nehemiah fasted and prayed and wept and mourned and suffered for five months. And it sobers me because sometimes, guys, I struggle to pray over something for five minutes. (laughs) We are microwave, give it to me now kind of people. And I love Amazon Prime as much as you do, but it's kind of jacking with my prayer life. You get the sense that Nehemiah's prayer is this deep, dredging, soul-scraping work. We need to quit this idea that reduces prayer to this quiet, quaint, charming thing. Nehemiah would have no idea what that's like. Prayer should be tough. It's this inward burning thing that's like ignited by and sustained by this feeling that there is something in my world that's not right, and if not me, then who? (laughs) It's a great question to ask around a burden, by the way. A.W. Tozer would put it like this. He says, pray until you pray. The heart seldom gets hot while the mouth is open. A closed mouth before God and a silent heart are indispensable for no man is qualified to speak who has not first listened. That's Nehemiah's prayer life. Before he says a word to anybody else, he prays five months. It's a comforting thought, isn't it, that the same God who oversaw, orchestrated, and ordered the events around Nehemiah's burden is the same God who's willing to do the same for us if we have ears to hear him. If you buy into the idea that God's power shows up when our burdens line up, it may cost you your position, it may cost you your peace, it will definitely cost you something. What will you give up for your burden? I lied. One more thing, and then we'll wrap up. Nehemiah's name, Nehemiah's name, just file this one away for the next couple of weeks. Nehemiah's name means the Lord comforts. It's a good reminder for the burdened among us. Pulling my Jolly Rancher blue pickup into my driveway, I breathed a sigh of relief. But trucks are not made for the driveway, are they? Alignment, it would seem, is very important. God's power shows up when our burdens line up. Let me pray for us. Father, I feel a great kinship with Nehemiah, and I know so many of us do. When we hear bad news, God, we are afraid to enter in but we know that's what you've called us to do. That's who you've made us to be. Help us not turn a blind eye to a dark world. 
But God, would you give us courage by your spirit? Show us where you want us to go. Show us what you want us to do. As we seek to give our lives to you, our time and our talents and our treasures, God, help us to give it all away so that when our time comes, there's nothing left because we've given it all for your kingdom. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.